morning. Did you guys have a good night? Yes, got some sleep. I had a really great evening. I got to hang out with the girls at the dorm. Um, it was awesome. I just really realized how much I miss girl time. It was just, I wish I could do that all the time. Um, I actually, as we were singing the second song, I was thinking, have you ever heard the song, um, the, the story behind the song that, um, what was the name of the second song? Heart of Worship. Have you ever heard that story? Okay, so the story, I think it's an amazing story, so I'm going to share it with you before I go into the sermon. The reason why the song was written is because it was at a church, I believe it was in Texas, but I don't know for sure because I don't remember, but there was a church that had a lot of musicians in this church, and it got to the point where they started competing with each other about who can write a better song that's going to praise God and that everybody's going to love, and it just became about this competition, and the pastor eventually realized that it was a problem because really it was just about pride. Right about who's going to be better than somebody else. And so he said, he just came up uh, to the Pope at one point, and he just said, I am calling a, um, what's it called? A um, moratorium, I guess you could say, on singing. And he said, nobody is going to sing at this church until you all figure out what it really means to worship God. Because these people were musicians, this was like really hard for them to suddenly not sing, right, not praise God. And so they took the time, and it was several months, and then they all got together, all of them that had been competing before this, and they wrote this song. And then from that point on, they sang that song together, and this competition just went away because they realized that it was about singing together. And the words in that are about that. It says, it's all about you, not about us, not about me. And I don't want worship to be about anything else but you, God. And so I, ever since I had that story, I've just loved that song. And then when you listen to the words, you just realize that, yes, that's what it's about. It's all about Jesus. All right, let's begin this morning with prayer. Lord God, once again, we come to you, and we just ask that you are the one who speaks to every single one of us. I pray this in your name. Amen. Have you ever been to a feast, like something that you could really call a feast? Okay, I see some hands. One time, it was only one time that I went to something that I could call a feast, and it was in the country of Jordan. I went there for, well, we did a trip with students when I was at the university. But we spent two weeks in Jordan doing archaeological digs. And we were at this um, tell where we had a square. And I was actually, I was put as a supervisor for the square. I have no clue why, because I didn't know anything about archaeology. But they just had to have different people do it, right? So I had to do it. And we were digging every single day, all day. It was super hot. There were just flies everywhere. But my square found a seal. And so it made it all worth it because we were so excited because at the end of the two weeks, we actually had something to show where we had found an ancient seal from some leader. Well, I don't know who it was. 
Um, but it was still super exciting. Well, at the end of those two weeks that we were there, the people who were in the area um, decided to, do, to make a feast for us and to invite us for all of us to go there. And so we come to this house, which was, I mean, just a huge, huge place. And on their property, they had tents set up that just went like this way and this way and this way. And under these tents were little stations with food all around. I mean, this was huge. It was way bigger than this, than this, than this, uh, this room. And you just would have, the tents were just like, like all around. And each station had rice, chicken, and some kind of a sauce. It was probably the best food I've ever had in my life. And then they had some other just like different things that were just all over the place. And you could go to any of the stations and just eat whatever you wanted, however much you wanted. I remember this feast for the rest of my life because it was so amazing. And we were all just in awe of the fact that this family would do this for us. And there was, I mean, there was about 50 of us. So this was a huge feast they put on for us. But I know that that feast, any feast, really pales in comparison to the feast that described in Daniel chapter 5. So I want to invite you again to go to Daniel chapter 5. Thank you for my computer. Let me move it this way. Okay, so go ahead and turn to chapter 5, and I'm going to situate this computer and see if I can play it. I only have two slides that I want to show you today um, that just kind of help us see what the king saw. So Daniel chapter 5, and it begins by saying that Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords. And he drank wine in the presence of the thousand. And I told you already that this is Belshazzar's last night of his life. Well, he's making this huge feast. And while he tasted the wine, in other words, when he got drunk, he got bold. And when he got bold, he gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem. Now, I already told you that Nebuchadnezzar was not actually his father. It was his grandfather. So why does it say that it was his father? Well, because the father, the term father was used for anybody. Okay? It could have been the, the father, it could have been the grandfather, it could have been the great-grandfather. As long as it was in your family, it was your father because it was related to you. So this, Belshazzar was really Nebuchadnezzar's son, and then Nebuchadnezzar was his grandfather. So it says that he brings out these vessels from the gold from the temple in Jerusalem, <clears throat> made of gold. And all of these people are drinking out of them. Then in verse 3, they brought the gold vessels that had taken from the house of, um, of God. It repeats it again. <clears throat> and in verse 4, it says, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, and iron. What does that remind you of? Gold, silver, bronze, and iron. The statue, right? So there is a lot packed in just in these few little verses. We see what the motivation of the king really is. He knows exactly what he's doing. 
He's not just going there because, okay, this is just something that just comes to his mind. He is doing this on purpose. He wants to defy the God of the Hebrews because he knows that his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had actually turned his life around. He was 26 years old by the time Nebuchadnezzar died. So he had plenty of time to actually see Nebuchadnezzar and what God did in his life. But he didn't like this God that changed his grandfather. And so he purposefully takes all of this and he's defying God. He is trying to provoke God. Most of the time, when someone tries to provoke or defy God, God doesn't answer. But not this time. This time, God does answer. And in the next verse, it says, In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. God answers, and he knows that this is God, because just a hand appears out of nowhere. And this hand is writing on the wall. Has there ever been another time that you can think of that a hand of God wrote? The Ten Commandments, right? The hand of God wrote the Ten Commandments. So in other words, this is judgment for him, because the God who gives the law is now sending judgment on Belshazzar. And so then the story continues, and it says, The king's countenance changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so the joints of his hips were loose, and his knees knocked against each other. He gets scared. In fact, he's so scared that he's shaking. Not only is he shaking, it actually says that his hips were loose, which scholars believe that most likely he peed himself, maybe even did number two. We don't know what that is, he pooped himself. So he is so scared that like he can't even figure out how to go on now. And the king cries out, and what's, what's amazing is that this king, who really is a bully, because he's trying to bully the king of the God of the Hebrews, now suddenly turns chicken. Right? But it's amazing because really that's what happens. Bullies, whenever they are actually, whenever their harassment is towards somebody else, they're fine. But as soon as it's turned against them, they just run home to mommy. Right? And that's exactly what happens to him. I mean, he's just crazy scared. And then he calls everybody and tells them, you need to interpret this thing, and nobody can. Surprise, surprise. Verse 8 says, they come, and they could not read it and they could not give him the interpretation. And so he says again that he's troubled and his countenance has changed. And now something happens. It just says, the queen enters the room. Doesn't even give us her name, because it doesn't need to. Everybody knew who she was. We obviously don't, because we're so far removed from this. But most likely, this was the queen Natukris which was not Nebelshazzar's wife because she would not have known Daniel. It was not his mom because she was in Tima with his father. So this would have been somebody who was, who was actually either 
Nebuchadnezzar's wife, one of his last wives, or it was his daughter. And scholars believe that it was most likely his daughter, but no one knows for sure. Either way, she had access to the court. She could do whatever she wanted because she was so famous. And so she just waltzes in and says, I am here to tell you what to do. And she tells him about Daniel. And she, she says in, um, towards the end of verse 10, says, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians. She's trying to show him that, hey, he was Nebuchadnezzar. You know him. He was really close to you. Right? So Daniel is someone you need to call. She finally tells him and explains about all of these things that Daniel is good at. And so the king calls Daniel. Verse 13 says, Daniel was brought before the king. And the king says, are you that Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Do you see what he's doing here? He's being a bully again. He just like turns just like that because that's in his nature. That's who he is. He's pride. He's, his pride just shows right away. He thinks that he's better than him. He's better than Daniel because Daniel is just a captive. I mean, come on. He's just a Hebrew. How can he really tell him anything? And then he says, okay, well, I've heard of you, that the spirit of God is in you, that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now, the wise men, the astrologers, no one was able to tell me anything. But I have heard of you that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you read the writing, I will give you all of these gifts. And he promises him all kinds of things. And Daniel answers. But Daniel is not scared of the king. And he's very bold. And he says, let your gifts be for yourself. Keep everything. I don't want it. But he says, O king, before he gives him the interpretation of the writing, he gives him a sermon, really. And he says, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses." Now listen to what he tells him. But you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. He calls him out. He says, you knew all of this. You're pretending here that you don't know me, that you don't know anything about what happened. It's not going to cut it, because I know the truth. 
you knew all of this, everything that had happened. And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. Once again, it's pride. They have brought the, and you have brought the vessels and you drank out of them. And then he adds this. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. He said, you know this because you had heard this from the time that you were a little boy about the fact that God is the only God and that God is the one who gives life. And the fact that you are even alive and here today is a gift from God because he is giving you that breath of life. And then he goes and he tells him the interpretation of this inscription. And he says, the inscription said, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Uforsen. Now, why is it that these wise men could not interpret it? Well, they could not interpret it because it was written like this. No vowels. Okay? But also, they didn't know what language it was. Because it could have been an Aramaic, it could have been a Kidian, it could have been... Hebrew could have been all kinds of things. They didn't know what it was. And then in the end, if they did actually figure out that, okay, it actually said that, they weren't sure what it meant. They had no clue what it meant. But Daniel looks at it, and he knows right away. He knows this is written in ancient Aramaic, because he's an expert at it, and he knows what it says. And so he reads it to the king, he says, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Ufarsin. Unlike the wise men, the king knows right away what it means. Because he was a renowned wool merchant. And as a merchant, he used all of this terminology that God used here. And so he knew what God was telling him. Now I want to see if you would do better than the wise men. Okay? And how well... You would have been able to do this. Anyone want to try? <laughs> Something David? Okay. It's a good guess. Yes. Number, number, way, divide, which is exactly what the message was to the king. Okay? So he tells him, Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it, Tekel. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting, Perez, or Farsin. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And what's interesting about this also is that Daniel, when he gives him this explanation, he gives it to him exactly in four words each. So when he tells him Mene, the explanation is four words. When he gives him Tekel, the explanation is four words. When he gives him Perez, the explanation is four words. So even just the fact that Daniel does this, that should have told the king what's going on. Why? Because what else has four in Daniel? Four medals, right? Four kingdoms, and that's it. It's over. After that, there is no other kingdom. So the number four tells him also that this is over. And the king gets it. He knows, okay, that's it. And so he gives Daniel all that he had promised him. 
And then it says the last verse, this very night, Belshazzar, king of Chaldeans, was slain. Now Belshazzar, what you don't know, is in the background of this, he really could have been fighting the Persians that night because he knew that the Persians were already coming and advancing. And his dad, Nebuchadnezzar, was fighting them. But Belshazzar, it doesn't really make any sense whatsoever, decides to have a feast instead. He doesn't care that his dad is fighting in the war, that he could lose his life. All he cares about is his feast. And so that same night, the Persians come in, and there are different stories about how they came in. And they enter in, and he's killed. His life is over. This chapter, to me, has several different lessons. But one of the ones that I think is really important is the aspect of pride. That he is judged because of his pride. Because he thinks that he's better than someone else. Now we can think that, well, we don't really do that, right? We don't really think that we're better than others. But the truth is that in every single one of us, there are times when we think that we are better than somebody else. And we judge people based on all kinds of things. It can be their skin color. It can be the fact that we think that they are judging us, so we're going to judge them. It can be the way they do something. Well, I do it better because I know how to do this, but this person does it differently, so that means that it's wrong. It can be simple things, even at home. It can be me doing dishes, and I want them done my way, and, my, and I do not like the fact that my husband does them this way. Because I think that I'm better than him because I can do it better. Every single time we do that, we are showing our pride. Because we think that we are better than someone else. So what I want to do this morning is I want to give you time to once again pray and spend time with God and talk to him about the kinds of things that you find in yourself that you think that you're better than others in. And some of it, maybe you're not even sure of. And you need God to just show you what it is. So take the time and pray, and then I'm going to end again with prayer. Ask God to show you in what way are you thinking that you're better than somebody else. And then ask God to take it out, because that's all pride. And it all means that I'm not really actually living the love that God wants me to live out. I'm not being a Christian the way I need to be a Christian. Because I keep holding on to these things that I am better in. And I think I am better than someone else. So once again, you can kneel, you can sit. You can do it however you want. I'm going to kneel again, and then at the end, I'm going to pray for all of us.
Dear Lord, I want to ask that you please take away our pride and our selfishness and the things that make us judge other people where we think that we're better than them because of the way they look, because of the way they do things. Lord God, it is just showing our pride and how sinful we really are. And it's in us because that's who we are. We are selfish. And so, Lord, we know that we need your help. We know that we are not different without you. And so please reach down. Touch our hearts. Do something in every single one of us so that we keep giving all of this to you and then we keep asking for transformation. Lord, transform us so we are the kind of Christians who love people and who do not judge and criticize ourselves or others, but that we leave it all in your hands. Keep changing us, Lord, I pray. Pray this in your name. Amen.